0: So I was in, yeah, I was, in, I was actually in France at the time, 9-11 hit. I had friends in New York, family in New York. So you're getting like all the frantic call and then you're like, first it's just a, t- you know, first it's just a tower. And then you're like the second one and then you're like, holy shit.
1: Yeah. What
0: was, what was really interesting is you're seeing it through the eyes of, of everyone in France. And it was crazy. Cause I mean, everybody just stopped. Mm-hmm. And so you're taking all that in, but. But the reality is by the time I wanted to figure out, I I need to do something, you know, by October, there were ODAs on the ground, just decimated everything. that thing was like, I thought it was over by October. So I was like, oh, there's nothing to do. Yeah, (laughs) You know what I mean? But then uh, Iraq kicked off, or at least the drum beat to go to Iraq. And you're like, okay, this is gonna be a long, like, yeah, we could could still get in here. You still have time, (laughs) Yeah. yeah.
1: What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the Mountain Tough podcast. We are so glad that you guys are here. It is our goal to bring you impactful stories that help you live an abundant life. These episodes are short and powerful. And what we're trying to do is bring you stories that help you grow physically, mentally, emotionally, nutritionally, living the Mountain Tough lifestyle. Thanks for coming back week after week and helping us become one of the top mental toughness podcasts in the country. I also wanted to say thank you to everyone who's commented and reviewed and rated these episodes. We are super grateful for that. We appreciate that so much, and we love seeing those come through. Also, a special thanks to those that are posting clips from these episodes on social media. We love seeing those as well. And our social media team will try to reshare those as well as they come through. There's a lot going on in the lab. It is fall in Bozeman, Montana. The weather is starting to drop. So we're coming out of summer. It's a beautiful fall here in Montana. And the lab is rocking and rolling. One of the coolest things going on in the lab right now is the MGDs. If you don't know about the MGDs, they started a little over a year ago, and it is one of the most popular products in our app. The reason I want to mention it is because it is crazy how much it is taking off. And the reason it is taking off is that it's a fresh minimal gear workout Every single day. So every 24 hours, a minimal gear workout is posted that we record live downstairs. It's fully coached and then it expires 24 hours later. So it's similar to going to a class where it's always new, always fresh, new athletes each time that you're trying to compete with or benchmark with. And we are going into a block right now of some of the most difficult MGDs we've ever done. So if you're looking for a challenge, if you're looking to take things to the next level, the mountain four-week mental toughness block of MGDs starts around October 1st. So if you haven't seen that product, dive into the app and check that out. And if you don't have the app yet, just remember you can always start on that 14-day free trial. Just straight from the app store, 14 days for free or from mountaintough.com. Diving into today's episode, today I sit down with Nate Kuhana from Anthem Snacks. Nate is a Texas born and raised Green Beret. He did serve with 3rd Special Forces Group. And after being wounded, Nate actually transitioned out and dove down this path of this awesome entrepreneurship journey. The journey took him to Montana and the journey led him into the jerky industry, which was pretty random, but it did allow him to take a leap of faith and create Anthem Snacks, a veteran-owned jerky company with their entire focus on giving back to veterans, active duty special forces, and the entire military community. So an awesome brand. It's awesome that they're based here in Bozeman, Montana now. And we dive into Nate's mindset and one of the awesome things that I want everyone to hear today is how Nate's mindset of positivity and optimism allowed him to achieve greatness, greatness through his business and his personal life. So stand by as I dive into my conversation with Nate.
0: I, I literally don't remember dates. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's just a blur to me. Mm-hmm. And then I have like, you know, milestones you hit, like depending on where you moved or what you did. And then you're just like, oh yeah, and you know, like rehash that stuff, and you're like, oh shit, man, <laughs> Yeah. it's been like 20 years. <laughs> yeah, you know, now it's probably 15, but still,
1: I go, yeah, I go through the same thing. We worked in Africa just for a little bit, my wife and I, and we worked in Uganda. And I, I do enjoy like talking to friends about it and chatting about it, but they they always will ask about like dates and years and you're like god like i always screw it up like it was some long people ago. are really good at it yeah some people some nail people it people
0: like they know like the dates this like summer of whatever they'll give you like the you know i'm like holy shit man i have to like bracket my my timelines in you know what i'm saying cuz i'll be like i know i did this in you know 2011 i know i did this in 2004 we're talking like the, you know, 06 to 08 time frame. Yeah. And I'm like, that's like the best I can give some people on like certain certain aspects unless I know like, I mean, I really dial it in, but some people know exactly where they were. It's like tough. The recall is amazing. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Dates and times. Yeah. and Some people nail that stuff.
0: Yeah. I'm not one of those people. No. <laughs> yeah. I kind of said it, forget about it. And then, <laughs> and then I'll go back and hopefully I marked it somewhere and I'm like, oh yeah, that was a date. <laughs> I think it's like a... Right brain,
1: left brain thing. Because like the more of like the engineer types, uh, the mathematical types just are so good at that stuff. Yeah. Where I have more of the like creative. Creative. Yeah. Yeah. So I try to say
0: the same thing. I I talked to a couple of friends that are like actually artists and some of that stuff. I'm like, I'm not a artist or anything, but like if you looked at like a canvas or whatever, like they're kind of blurs and broad strokes of like creating something, you know what I mean? mm -hmm. Versus like to your point the uh, developer or the engineer who's, like, very precise. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, it's not me. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, my God.
1: I do think an awesome part of your military story, though, is joining after the events of 9-11. Yeah. Just because I think a lot of men in the country at that moment all wanted to do what you went and did because of what happened, and not everyone did it. So it's, like, super inspirational that, like, you went and signed up after seeing those events unfold.
0: Yeah, it's, uh, I, I really try to see it from both sides because I'm like, part of me is like, am I so dated that like, that's like some people don't even understand that concept of like nine eleven? That was like, <laughs> you know, like, I, I, don't, I don't know how that lands with some people. You know yeah. what I mean? Because um, I know some people that join in like the middle of it, right? And so they join for other reasons, which is amazing. Uh, but mine was, I mean, literally, it was just like the towers. I was in Europe and I was like, this is crazy. You know what I mean? Like, so even though we've all grown up or at least my generation, like coming up watching Rambo and all that, like being in the military was never like on my radar. You -hmm. know what I mean? It was just like down to the most uh, primitive, you know, thing where you're just like, holy shit. Yeah. Like this is going on right now. Like what can you do? Where'd you grow up at? Uh, Houston,
1: Texas. And then you were
0: in college based over in Europe when you saw that? So I was in, yeah, I was, in, I was actually in France at the time, 9-11 hit. I had friends in New York, family in New York. So you're getting like all the frantic call and then you're like, first it's just a, t- you know, first it's just a tower. And then you're like the second one and then you're like, holy shit. Yeah. What was, what was really interesting is you're seeing it through the eyes of, of everyone in France. And it was crazy. Cause I mean, everybody just stopped. Mm-hmm. And so you're taking all that in, but. But the reality is by the time I wanted to figure out I, I need to do something, you know, by October, there were ODAs on the ground, yeah. just decimated everything. And that thing was like, I thought it was over by October. So I was like, oh, there's nothing to do. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? But then uh, Iraq kicked off, or at least the drum beat to go to Iraq. And you're like, okay, this is going to be a long, like, yeah, we could, we could still get in here. You still have time, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then you're watching, you know, guys on horses with beards and you're like, Oh, this looks good. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. you're like, and and you are partially lucky because you're just that window, like you said. um, You're just like, I can go right now and be in the, you know, be in the thick of things. Um, The truly lucky ones are the guys that were already in.
1: Mm -hmm. Got sent right away. Yeah,
0: that, you know, because I I looked at joining the military like for a minute and I was like, but what are you going to do? Like, there's nothing going on. You know what I mean? Yeah. You're talking about A lot 99. of training. Yeah, 99. Yeah. You know, all you kept hearing about was like, I mean, there was the first Gulf War, which was over quick. And then what, Grenada? Yeah. <laughs> You're like, there's nothing going on. And so the guys that were there in 99, 2000, and then when it hit, they're just like first to, you know.
1: Trained up, yeah. ready so, to go.
0: Yeah. But they created a whole program for guys, you know, that were coming in off the streets. To get uh, training done fast. Yeah. It's called the 18 X-ray program. And, uh, so when I went to the recruitment offices and they pitched me on that, I was like, right, right off the street, you can go try out for this thing. And they were like, like, you can do it. <laughs> and I was like, let's do it. <laughs> Did you walk right into like a recruiting office? So I actually walked into the Marine recruiting office. I wanted to be a Marine and, uh, and I wanted, I was going to be an officer and the guy was like, it's a six month wait list. And I was like, what? <laughs> I was like, dude, I'm ready right now. He's like, bro, everybody wants to sign up. And it just kind of dawned on me, I was like, oh, I'm an idiot. Of course everybody wants to sign up. There's like, this a is a long list. Yeah. So I went down to the Army and Navy recruiting office in a strip mall, right, right across, like literally right across the hall from each other. And uh, the Army guy pitched hard and he had this x-ray. Pro- First, they were offering two things. They had, a, they had a ranger contract. So you were guaranteed to at least try out, you know, you can become a ranger. And they just opened up this, what they call the x-ray program. Um, so you could try out for special operate or special forces mm-hmm. and, you know, he's showing you like all the cool guy videos. This guy, keep in mind, this guy's a mechanic, right? Yeah. But he's like <laughs> pitching hard. He's showing you all this stuff. And I was like, uh, so what happens if you don't make it? He goes, well, needs of the army. And so the difference in the Navy and the army to me was if you didn't make it in the army, cool. You could, you could still go into infantry. You could still, d- if you don't make it in the Navy, you end up on a ship somewhere. Just stuck on a yeah, boat. So if you're not a SEAL... What are you? You know what I'm saying? Like, you're, you're a sailor, right? Yeah. And uh, and so the Army pitch just seemed... It like you had Rangers, you had infantry, even if you were just an 11 Bravo. You got some options. Yeah. You. I mean, if, I wasn't looking at it as a career. I just... I'm coming in to do this thing. They've got me for six years or whatever it is, right? So at least give myself the most options to do, like, participate in this thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I was like, I don't think the... I didn't know what the nutrition rate was or anything, but uh, I figured they probably need people. <laughs> so I'm, I'm sure it's not complete bullshit. that This program is probably set up to get people.
1: Yeah, you know, through into, the
0: pipeline. Yeah. At a and good and so, greatest speed. Yeah, and, like, and we'll see where it lands, and just kind of went from there. Did you have military in your family? No. My dad, I did, but not in the U.S., my dad's an immigrant, so mm. he was in the Israeli uh, army, but nobody in the U.S. And you just had finished your college degree, just finished college degree, and
1: so you had that wrapped up already.
0: Yeah, had that wrapped up already. Came back, and I was, uh, I was like ready to go. <laughs> That's <laughs> and, wild, yeah. So, it, for me, it was like you had a, you have a window to do this stuff. Be- besides the timing of what we talked about, nine eleven, you. I figured you could be in a desk the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. Like I could sell insurance or whatever, whatever crap would be an investment banker. I could do that whenever. The window to do something physically active and and like test yourself. That's probably, yeah, that's short. And then, and then on top of that, like you have a window where as a country, we're actually like doing something. Mm -hmm. So it just was like a no brainer. Perfect timing. Yeah. Just seemed to make sense. Did you have a pretty outdoorsy childhood in Texas? Honestly, not really. No, um, I grew up in Houston, uh, been hunting a couple times, but it wasn't like, wasn't like an avid hunter or anything like that. Uh, Outdoors a lot, but not in that sense. I mean, I grew up playing like your, the big three sports, just basketball, baseball, football, Mm -hmm. Um, pretty normal middle
1: class life. (laughs) And then, so you got through x-ray, you went into special forces. Where did you end up going? Uh, So
0: ended up in third special forces group, which okay. is in Bragg or whatever they renamed it. Mm-hmm. Um, so went to infantry basic training. And then with, they had what they have call a SOPSI program, special operations preparation course uh, to get you ready for a selection. And so, which is probably the hardest thing up until that point um, that we have done because you're just weeding out people along the way. And then you go through selection. And then once you make it through there, um, you actually get in what they call the Q course. And then they start that whole process. And so, but ended up on a team in Bragg. I missed Iraq by honestly, probably two weeks. So I showed up to the team, uh, mostly because the language I got assigned, I got assigned, even though I, ha- I was, what they would consider fluent in French at the time, they stuck me in Arabic. <laughs> so waste of six months of my life, showed up to the team, missed, missed Iraq by probably two or three weeks, mm-hmm. um, which kind of sucked. But uh, but ended up on, like, the free fall team, great team. I mean, you show up, you're just brand new. It's like a team of grown-ass men. <laughs> you know what I mean? With all, like, seniors, E7s, all wartime experience. You're just like, holy shit, man. <laughs> just a bunch of skills. Yeah. 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 So, and I was lucky. It was a good team. Um, Had a really good mentor who ended up dying, but really good mentor. Kind of took me under the wing. Kept me away from all the bullshit that most, most of the new guys had to deal with. Mm -hmm. But uh, you just sit back and you just kind of take it in, man. You're like, holy shit, this is crazy. (laughs) That happened fast too. Yeah. Really fast. Yeah. It happens quick. Cause you're, you're in the, the Q course with a bunch of your peers and you just get, you get comfortable because you know, kind of where you stack up and everyone's kind of doing most of this stuff for the first time. Um, Especially depending on what MOS you had, but then you show up to a team and it's like, all right, this guy's been doing it for you know a long time.
1: Yeah, a and lot of reps.
0: Yeah, and you don't know any of these guys, and you got to prove yourself and and all that stuff. And so, the, how long were you there? Uh, so I was got in, came in o three, left at 09. so about six years. Did yeah. you Did you enjoy it? So I loved it. I mean, I got injured on my last, wounded on my last trip. Um, I loved it when I was there, when I was on my first two teams, I was on the same team, but like you, you start changing leadership. The, the team I left with, I was like, this isn't for me anymore. Um, I had already been wounded. We lost our, our, uh, chief warrant officer, who was like my best friend on the team who kind of really set the tone for us. And then you have a team leader and a team sergeant who pretty much rotate every two years out. My first team leader, my first two team leaders were amazing. The next, the next one, not so much. And so it's a, it's a, it's, it's a little bit of a personality thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so by the time I left, considering with the injury and everything, I was just like, it's probably time for me to leave. Um, and I thought I was, I was gonna be 29 at the time. And I was like, if I'm gonna either do this 20 years or it's time to move on. And if it is time to move on, I better move on pretty quick cause I'm already behind the curve here. And so, uh, but I desperately, uh, I, I really missed it when I left. And it was culture shock to go into the civilian world after that. Oh, I bet. Yeah. And even in those six years you were in, you always had,
1: like, on the back burner, did you always have this desire for business and
0: entrepreneurship? Yeah, I mean, all my uncles kind of did it. It was the kind of running joke was, like, you know, if you're not you're not bankrupt two times already, you're not trying hard <laughs> enough. You know what I mean? It's like. Just in the family. Yeah. You just like, it's, you're going to, you, you need to fail quickly. You know what I mean? Um, to figure out what, you know, what, what you're doing right, what you're doing wrong and, and kind of get back on the horse. So I did. But when you come out of the military, at least for me, everyone's got a different transition story. For me, it was, uh, you know, you're kind of broke. You got no money. And then you're either going to do what you were doing in the military and you're just going to do it on the contracting side. And so I did that for a couple of years. It was like, wait a minute, I could do exactly what I was doing, but get paid better. Get paid a bunch more. Let's do that. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> but then you realize, at least for me, um, the further out you go, the less relevant you are. Cause your experience, you know, th- there's gonna be newer guys coming out with more experience that are that's more recent. Mm-hmm. So your, you know, your skill set is getting stale you're not as relevant in what you're doing. And then there's guys coming out with 20 years experience that have seen kind of everything. And so I'm like, is this what I'm going to do for 10 years? So it's tough to kind of get off that where you're like, the money's pretty good, but it's time to move on. Yeah. And so for me, the only way to do that is like literally just kind of close that door and, and just pick like, and I went like 180 degrees the other, uh, you know, opposite way. What happened the day you got wounded? Uh, so we went out typical patrol, um, we knew something was up because it was super quiet, and uh, and I had I had intel in the area where we go, so I was like the level three, which is kind of the intel guy on the team. So I, most of what we did was uh, based on my target packaging and everything else, and the intel we had on the human side. And it wasn't anything like I planned when we went out. Like, I, like we all knew like something was going on. So all the all the women, all the children are kind of gone. Mm-hmm. The black flags were up. Uh, and then we just got ambushed and, uh, we lost one guy who got, uh, he was an attachment to our team. He literally got shot in the face, Nick. And then I got, uh, I got a grazing headshot. And so I was concussed, kind of came out of it in the middle of a gunfight, but I had like no equilibrium. Hmm. And so I kept trying to stand up and falling down and it's kind of a mess. (laughs) Um, Crazy. Yeah. But uh, it was kind of surreal because I was on the gun and it feels like, at least for me, when I got shot, it feels like somebody unplugging you and everything's kind of, it feels like we you know when they turn the TV off a little bit like that, but I was going, it felt like I was tumbling and that was just me falling off the gun onto the ter- you know, from the turret. Yeah. And then when I came out of it, you're in a gunfight and I couldn't stand up, but I could still like shoot and everything, but you're also fighting your own thoughts because you're like, what's real? What am I seeing versus what's going on? Just a mess. Yeah, yeah, so you're kind of a mess, and it took me... They tried sending me home, but it took me three weeks. I, I convinced them to let me stay on the team. It took me three weeks just to, like, get my equilibrium back so I can go back out on missions. The bullet just kind of grazed the side of your skull? Yeah, it pierced the top of my ear through my ear protection, through my Kevlar helmet, and then skidded down the side of my head, um, which... So people always tell me, like, you know, dude, you're so lucky. You know, an inch to the right, you'd be dead. And I'm like, you have an inch to the left. Nothing. (laughs) Yeah, nothing. You know what I mean? So it's like, it is what it is. And, you know. That's wild. Yeah. Yeah. So it's been, uh, yeah. Did you get some hearing loss out of that? I have no hearing in my left ear. It's all gone. Yeah. No hearing in my left ear. And obviously it, it affects other things in my life. But, I mean, all things considered. I mean, there was... Honestly, I think it was within the same week, uh, there's like a famous team in, in third group. They went to Shock Valley. Ten of them got Silver Stars. Like, this is like in the same week. So, you know, me coming off of that, I was like, I've got limbs. I've got, you know, we're good. You're healthy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. I've, I've dealt with other stuff in my, in my personal life um, because of it, but, but all things considered, I mean, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> still pretty good. Yeah.
1: Fortunate. Yeah. Wild. So then you finished the six years and where'd you go after that?
0: So did a couple of years contracting. um, And then I had a buddy going to Stanford at the time and he was trying to convince me to go, Hey, come to grad school. And, and, but he was already in. So when I was doing contracting, he was doing consulting for like, I think Deloitte or one of these big companies. So he had like real world experience. I was like, bro, what am I going to do? Like, first of all, I don't know if I can get into Stanford, but what am I going to do at Stanford? Like I, I don't, like, I don't know what to apply any of this stuff to, you know what I'm saying? And he was, he's telling me, I was like, yeah, but I haven't done any of that stuff. Like, it that doesn't seem, but I like the idea of uh, moving to San Francisco at the time. At the time, we were coming out of, So when I, sorry, let me back up. When I got out, it was like the middle of financial crisis, like 2009. Things so, were weird
1: at that time. Yeah, and I
0: remember we were doing Halo training um, in Yuma, and I just remember, like, the market's falling. I'm like, is this a great time to be getting out? <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're just like, you go from, like, a steady paycheck. The housing crisis. Yeah, and you're just like, is this the, is like, or, you know, is this this? So there was a little bit. But then I was like, all right, you know, where there's, yeah, there's always opportunity. You could look for opportunity in anything, right? And uh, and so I was like, okay. And you had the contracting to fall back on, so it wasn't as scary as, like, you know. But there really was no transition plan. There was none of the skill bridge stuff that they have now where, you know, they do this entrepreneurship or, you know, apprenticeship and all that. So, so I decided to move to San Francisco. I was like, look, San Francisco is just coming out of all this stuff. I've always thought at the time it was like the epic. I mean, it still is a little bit, but it's a very different city, but it was like the epicenter of like technology. Startups. Yeah. It was just that, that entrepreneurship, but they were breaking a lot of stuff and iterating and and coming from an organization even even an organization like mine which was pretty flat in the decision making but this was like next level it was just like there's no bureaucracies there's no risk mitigation like you raise a bunch of money you go create something you figure it out you stumble along the way you iterate you get better you know what i'm saying you just ship the the product get the feedback and you're you're off and moving yeah and that seemed perfect and you're going from this military everyone's kind of you know, thinking the same way to this completely different side of the spectrum. Creative, um, creative, super smart people, you know, at Berkeley, at Stanford, coming from Harvard, all these people. And I, I was just ready to do something completely different. So I, I picked up, moved to San Francisco, no plan. I uh, had like two bags and I was like, this is what we're going to do. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's wild coming out of third group. Yeah. Just going so to I, San Fran. It was crazy. Yeah. And it, at first it's exciting, right? Cause it's, it's all brand new. It's like a fire hose of like, you're, you're just taking everything in. And to be honest, I didn't want to deal with some of the shit that was going on in my life at the time anyway, just between injuries and everything. I was like, I just, if I just focus on doing something that's completely new and just throw everything into that, that'll keep me distracted. That'll keep me like motivated. Let's just go do something different. Yeah. Um, and it was intriguing. It was like, I was curious. I wanted to like you know, kind of create a new path for myself. And so I did that and I kind of got that whole, that whole experience, which was, which was pretty surreal. And looking back, it was, it was kind of crazy. I mean, I met my wife there, so that's, that's the great part that came out of it. I got into real estate there. I did some other stuff there in like this short window of like four years, but I worked for a startup. I worked for some 26 year old who was (laughs) going to be the next Mark Zuckerberg. (laughs) And I got the full dose of that. You know what I mean? Which is everything. Yeah. So, you know, you want to go there cause you're moving fast, you're breaking things. But the truth is I started to appreciate the previous life I had, which was structure, discipline. <laughs> you know, you're in the foxhole with like a guys you trust. Nobody's trying to like climb your back, all that stuff. Working and, out training. Yeah. And now you go to this place where there's a lot of, as smart as these people are, there's a lot of groupthink that goes on there. Mm-hmm. They're all saying the same things, whatever university they came, they're all saying the same stuff. Um, Culturally they're saying the same stuff. There's not a lot of diversity of thought. And you're just the first six months, I, I literally couldn't, I didn't know how to function because I was I was sitting at a desk for eight hours a day, which my body just couldn't do. Yeah. You know what I mean? And my boss is coming over to me on one of those like exercise balls, and he's just like, and I'm like, <laughs> what? I'm like, what the hell is going on right <laughs> now, man? It was like, it was pretty surreal. But what was your undergrad in? Just business. Yeah. Yeah. It was pretty, it was pretty general, just business. Yeah. And so I showed up, I was, so this CEO was the first, at the time his big claim to fame was he was the first intern at Facebook and Facebook was like the hottest thing at the time. So he raised a bunch of money, all a team of developers, no, nobody on the sales or marketing side. So I was like the first non coder, developer, designer guy at the company. For sales. And I honestly think he liked me because I was a Green Beret. Like he was just like this is cool man. He's like (laughs) and I think there was some misconception he probably thought oh you're military like eventually you'll build something and like be in charge of people and you're used to running people. I'm like bro that's not that's not my thing. (laughs) You got the wrong guy if you think I'm gonna like you know I'm a battalion commander or something. 40 people. Yeah so but it was cool but you got to go through the experience of, and I got to see firsthand, which affected how I run my business today is raised a bunch of money with a bunch of pressure. And you got to see the pressure get to him and his decision-making Bet, Yeah. Yeah, It's it's a lot of pressure to be the next big thing, taking on that kind of money. And it became a little bit of survivor, you know, Island over there of like people coming in the door, out of the door and seeing what that looked like. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I was safe the whole time, but I, it it just wasn't coming from an organization where we weren't in for the money. You know, you, you had like a mission, you trained together, purpose. No, Nobody's like, you know, trying to step on you to get to the next thing to like this random thing where everybody's chasing the next big thing and making excuses. And is like, it wasn't a different culture, completely different. It's what actually convinced me to, when I left, I was like, I should probably go get some structure from the business world. So I revisited, I didn't end up going to Stanford. Cause I didn't, I didn't want to be on any coastal cities after that experience. I was like, <laughs> San Francisco is not for me, you know, got to get back to the center. Yeah. It's, I used to joke, you know, San Francisco and all of California is like a peak into the future. And it used to be as weird as it was, it was like, this is pretty cool. Like you could see them trying new things. And now, and then you were just on like, okay, I'm seeing the future. I'm not like, you know what I mean? Like this isn't for me. You know what I mean? Oh man. So yeah. So I, I at that point I uh, decided I should probably go to business school with some of my experience, take a break from everything and just kind of regroup at that point. So did you go somewhere for an MBA? Uh, yeah. I went to university of Chicago. So we moved to Chicago, my wife and I, and which was good. It gave you like, some time to, it gave you for a big city and it's changed as well now as well, but for a big city, you didn't have all the attitude in New York and you didn't have all the snobbishness of you know, some of what happens in San Francisco. Yeah. It was just a little bit more grounded. Um, Hard working people too. Yeah. And, and the University of Chicago, you know, for all the programs I looked at, mostly talk through the data. Instead of like the narrative piece, which is what I was seeing a lot in, in a lot of the places coming out West, you know, it was very much like, I'm going to sell you a dream and a, you know, this and that, and we're going to change the world. It's like, okay, well not everyone could do that. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. You know, at the end what's of the, the day, it's just the black and white. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, for me, it was like, let's just talk through the data. Let's make decisions on empirical evidence or whatever we need to do. And then, cause I'm a, I'm a very. I'd say logical thinker, you know what I mean? Like if you can, if we can have a discussion and and it makes sense to me, we can move forward. But if you're pitching me some vision, which is great, but I'm not seeing a game plan here. Like it's going to be pretty tough, you know? So how old were you when you graduated with your MBA? I was old. I was already, yeah, probably 30 some, 30, 38 maybe or something. And I imagine
1: this point in your life, like, just graduating, there's probably not one moment you ever thought you would be in the jerky business.
0: Zero, <laughs> never even <laughs> thought about it. Nothing. I mean, this is the furthest thing from anything I thought I'd do. I mean, it's look. I never thought I'd be in the military. <laughs> I never thought I'd be in tech. So, in many ways, like it seems like my mo is just to break it down, start over, figure it's, it out. Yeah, it's uh, it's new. It's exciting. I'm curious, I want to learn, I'm not afraid to like work and fail. But then you feel like, okay, we, I, I understand what this is and I either want to take part in it or I don't, right? Um, mm. The story on the jerky thing is I had a, a friend who was also in Chicago. We were looking at doing some kind of business together. We just w- we weren't sure what we were going to do. And his dad was out here looking for a second home and he found a broker that, that uh, came across three meat processing plants that were for sale. And so he asked me, he's like, what do you think about doing something with this? And I was like, well, what capacity? He's like, he's like, we can invest, we can run the company, we could do whatever. And I said, "Uh, bro, I don't know shit about this. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing. (laughs) I don't know anything about the meat industry. This seems like the dumbest idea (laughs) personally. Yeah. I'm going to go to a place where I have no network, no friends, (laughs) I just finished the MBA program. I should probably go be working in venture capital or, you know, doing whatever, some, some, uh, consulting gig, you know, whatever, <laughs> or going back to startup land. And you want me to throw all that away to go into an industry where I don't know anyone in a, Montana. a new place. Yeah. I was like, this is probably not a great idea, but I, I love my, I mean, I, I know, I knew people that had been out here. I have a friend who's actually a cop in a, uh, up in uh, Missoula, he was in ten Special Forces group, and so I knew about Montana. I just didn't know how you make a living out here. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's like there's not a lot of industries necessarily. So unless you're you have your own business or you're working for one of these companies, and so I was like, okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna go meet these three families. So I came out here, I met the three families, and I just kind of fell in love with it, man. So I was like, like, just to see them working at the plants just to see like, and we went to some meat processing conventions. I was just like knee deep in this stuff. That's insane. Yeah. I was just doing all the research because my job at at the time was going to be, I was going to be an investor. And then there were three families and my buddy and I as kind of the investor side, he was going to be, he's got private equity background and all that. Um, And so for me, it was going to be more on sales and marketing, some of that stuff. um, And then figuring out how to tell their story. Right. And then the, the, the easiest thing I saw was you know, when you run these plants, you're just trying to keep the lights on. Mm -hmm. Like you've got to, you know, they're, they've been around for, you know, 40 plus years, these families. Um, They didn't know how many incentives there were at the state level, you know, between tax abatements and credits and all kinds of stuff. And half the time you just don't have time to fill out the applications to get this stuff. Yeah, they're just grinding, trying to do the thing. And I was like, okay, well we can, I think it's a really good opportunity using their stories. You know, I'm just behind this thing. a really good opportunity to brand Montana beef, right? Uh, get a, a grading, a designation, you know, something. Cause at the time what was happening was between all the deforestation, climate change stuff and all that. And I was like, yeah, but you've got all this beef in Montana. It's a good, yeah, yeah you high know quality like, product. And you could do source verified all the way through down to the rancher and just tell the whole story. And I was gonna be behind on the, you know, not in front of that and anything. And we'd build like a, a brand new facility, and then you start doing the research and then you start doing the work and then you start doing the negotiation and you're like, so I wasted probably eight months doing this thing, going Just, in circles. And it was like a number of things. One, the, uh, the next generation didn't want to take over. So they had all gotten their degrees. They're like, I'm trying to get out of this place. I'm not trying to like stay in this, you know, the family business necessarily. Right. It's hard to find a workforce here too. The labor's so tight, mm-hmm. really hard to find a workforce The plants were all state inspected at the time, no USDA facilities, which means you couldn't really sell across state lines. Labor's super tight. And then the biggest issue I started figuring out is it's almost impossible at the time, maybe things have changed, but it was almost impossible to do this alone. They just don't have the infrastructure here on the feedlots, the kill facilities. It was cheaper to send your cattle to Kansas or Nebraska or wherever than to send the food to the cattle here. Without the infrastructure. Yeah. So you had to educate an entire market on what Montana beef was. And then at the end of the day, you couldn't even call it Montana beef because it was getting finished somewhere else. Yeah. And so for me, it was like a lot of variables at play. And then the negotiation between the families, it was like when you, they were all a little bit competitive. So nobody really wanted to work for the other one. We needed all of them to roll over Together, Yeah, because we need their equity and their expertise to, you know, to put this thing together. And, And we wanted, we didn't, they were all doing the same thing. So we need to figure out, you know, how we make this efficient. How do we get the throughput up and all this stuff in a new facility? But nobody wanted to kind of work for the other guy. And then because they're all kind of getting equity in each other, nobody they overvalued their own business relative to the other guy's business. Mm -hmm. And so the whole thing is like, okay, we have a deal with you. Okay, let's go take it to you. And they're like, well, I'm not going to give them that and this and that. Well, we've got the fastest growing. You're like, oh man.
1: So you looked at this for like eight months. This is
0: probably eight months. And I went, I was going to meat processing conventions, doing all this stuff. Just learning uh, as much as you could. And I finally had to walk away. I just told my buddy, he ended up investing in one of them. He was trying to get me to invest in one. I was like, yeah, but I'm not here to, if we're just going to have one plant, that, that's not what I'm looking for. Um, and I told them I was like, I, I'm just gonna have to walk away at this point. My, my opportunity cost. I already sunk eight months into this thing. Mm-hmm. But I walked away and I said, I think I could do jerky. Because you <laughs> saw something, huh? Like yeah, through that I just, experience. Yeah. I, I, I just looked at it and I said, I can't do all the other stuff. The processing, it, it's really hard. You got to sell everything off that animal. You know what I mean? Um, down to like the dog treats. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And it's a lot of work, a lot of supply chain stuff, a lot of labor, all that stuff. I said, but I think I could do jerky. I think from the market research I did and all this stuff, because jerky was gonna be one of the value add products in a list of all the cuts and all the other stuff we were gonna do. I said, I think I could do one thing and it would be jerky and maybe meat sticks. Mm -hmm. If I just stay focused on this one thing and instead of telling their story, it sort of becomes my story differentiate. Yeah. And my story is not their story. My I'm not the rancher down here. I'm not the fourth generation, you know, processing plant. Like it's not, that's not my story. Mm -hmm. And my story is not even necessarily Montana. Right. My story is just my story, which is, you know, I could be a veteran owned meat snack company. Yeah. And I just kind of hung my hat on that, did the research and then was like, let's do that. And I was living at the time in Billings with my wife And she wanted to move to Bozeman. And I was like, (laughs) I don't know if this thing has legs, but yeah, let's move to Bozeman.
1: That's wild. Yeah. I mean, that's just a pretty random series of coincidences to like lead you to a jerky company.
0: Yeah, it's pretty random. And then by the time I was ready to kick this thing off, COVID kicked off. And so nobody wanted to hear anything about a jerky company. Nobody's buying anything. Nobody's doing anything. My dad passed unexpectedly like that April of covid 2020 so you're Mm. dealing with all this stuff my wedding got canceled you're dealing with all this stuff and you're like chaos it's just utter chaos and it was uh but you know it's like anything you just put your right foot in front of your left and you're like and you just keep chugging along so then you had this idea to start essentially
1: a, a brand new jerky company from scratch and did you have the vision from the very beginning that it would be like a lifestyle brand
0: yeah, I thought that was the only, the only way it would work, to be honest with you. From the research I did, the 50% of the market's controlled by, you know, like two companies. Mm-hmm. And it's a very crowded space. And the, the obvious benchmark is like a, a black rifle coffee where you're like, okay, well, what's a more crowded space than jerky? Well, coffee.
1: <laughs> That's pretty crowded. You <laughs> yeah. Know what I
0: mean? And then you're like, okay, well, then you start and, you know, ev- everyone in the military space knows those guys. So you're just like, and they built a lifestyle brand. Right. And so you're like, okay, well, I don't know if we'll ever compete to get on the shelves um, and move off the Jack links of the world. Cause it's a lot of pay to play and, and they own that space, but I don't need to move them off. I just need to move off the number seven guy. You know what I mean? To get on there. Yeah. And yeah. how do you, how are you going to get on that shelf unless you differentiate? And the only way to differentiate in this space is, you know, jerky's jerky. I mean, it needs to be good jerky, but it's a, it's a commodity. It's meat. Mm-hmm the only way you're going to differentiate is your packaging, your story. That's really it. And part of your story is being a lifestyle brand, like showing that you have an audience, um, you know, and just going that route. And so I knew from the beginning, that was going to like, we had to play in that space. And then your, your lifestyle is for
1: Anthem is, is veteran owned pro military supporting the military, supporting the
0: country. What does Anthem stand for? Yeah. So it's, it's interesting. You know, when I came up with the name, everyone was always asking how how we got the name, what does it stand for? It's a combination of a few things, right? One, you you need to trademark something. <laughs> yeah. So what, what's on the list of things you can trademark? Uh, at the time you could see where the country is going. Uh, one of my favorite books is actually Anthem by IN a- Ran. And uh, it was about, you know, rediscovering like your individuality during dark days, you know, dark times and all this stuff. And so a combination of that, also, there was the kneeling of the anthem stuff going on. People didn't want to kneel. It was the whole protesting, all that stuff. And I was like, it just seemed right at the time. It was like, look, we're gonna name the Anthem. Um, and we're just gonna be very straightforward, you know. It's a pay, like it's really like if you if you support your community, if you support the country you love and, you know, and you support the people that serve this country, then that's you know, we would call it, that's like the lyrics to our anthem, right? Yeah. Um and that's kind of what we what we went with, and then the consumer has the choice now. Like, yeah, am I going to buy
1: this jerky or this jerky? This one supports the country. This one
0: it may or may not. Yeah, you know when when I left San Francisco, the, the the thing that left a bad taste in my mouth was it felt like I just didn't have. And I, I know people use this all the time, but like purpose and all that stuff. It just felt like I didn't. I wasn't driving towards something. Um, and as much as I ran away from the military experience just to like get on and start a career and not be this poor, oh, me, I got shot kind of thing, the quicker I, r- I realize, man, I miss that stuff. I really miss being in the community. Um, there's a lot of guys probably like me that are going through different things. And so for me, the easiest thing was just to make that public pledge, which is, look, um, 10% of our profits will go to you know nonprofit organizations that support the military or first responders or whatever the case may be. And it was a way for me to just feel good about what we were doing. so even though you're a for-profit company, um, we're all aligned. Mm-hmm. If we do well, like we're gonna support and you know make sure we're supporting the community and just that that one piece of it, which I didn't think of necessarily from the jump, but it just made us also different, which is not necessarily that other people aren't giving back, but it's a direct when I put that little as stupid as it is when I put that little thing that says veteran owned on there, I'm hoping. To get through to the consumer that says if you, su- more, if you support a small business, that's what this is there's no private equity and there's no crazy money behind it and uh, and when you do that not only is it a small business owner it's a small business owner that you know serve the country yeah that's the only way to fight these guys that have so much money, so much marketing power where you have to kind of cut through all that stuff
1: that's pretty awesome, yeah yeah, yeah it gives you it gives you a key communication message right to that person that's maybe buying this at a gas station. Yeah, that can kind of change their whole perspective, which is awesome.
0: Yeah, so I'm I'm thankful. It's a it's it's still one of the nonpartisan issues. No mm-hmm. matter what side of the aisle you are, most people still support the you know the military in some capacity. Yeah, and so it just seemed like a it seemed like the easiest thing to do was to kind of lean into that without being over the top. Like I wasn't going to be like screaming bald Eagle on, you know, my, <laughs> on my packaging or whatever, you know what I mean? Like I wanted to be true to who I was and, but also communicate to the consumer. Hey, if you're going to, if you're going to spend your hard earned money, at least, you know, sort of where it's going, you know what I mean? Yeah. Versus, you know, that stuff just goes into the ether when you, when you start buying corporate you know, corporate uh, corporations where you don't know sometimes where your money's going.
1: I know sometimes you have no idea.
0: Yeah, and you've made some pretty
1: significant leaps and bounds since this like founding vision. It's it's pretty wild, actually thinking about how far you've come in such a short amount of time. Because really, Anthem came together in twenty twenty one. 2020. So we kicked off June of 2020. So like three years in, you've made some significant, impressive progress. The one that is huge for like anyone who is from Montana is the town pump deal for sure. Because town pump, if you're not from Montana, you might not be familiar with it for our listeners, but for Montanans, town pump is like the king of Montana from a retail perspective. Like there's two town pumps in front of our gym here in Bozeman, <laughs> like a, less than a mile apart, Yeah, just massive gas station convenience stores. So for a product like yours, getting into town pump in Montana is like a phenomenal step forward, a phenomenal milestone. So how, how did this like go from vision
0: to where you're at today so quickly? Yeah, look, I mean, you can never do anything alone. You need help, you need breaks, all that stuff. We had um, a guy by the name of Dustin Frost who worked at the, I'm blanking on the name, but it it was essentially, it was to help veterans through the uh, economic, some Montana Economic uh, Business Association or something like that. And he made the introduction to Town Pump for me. I came to him originally. I said, look, this is kind of my idea. They were helping trying to get us into um, like government contracts and stuff like that. Cause I didn't know anything about that process and which didn't end up. That's not really the way we need to do anything. But in that process, I kind of showed him my business plan to him and his team, you know, the business plan, you don't need it. It was more or less just to kind of, for me to get my ideas on paper, how we saw this thing, get some feedback. And he was like, well, I'll introduce you, you know, I'll introduce you a few people and if, you know, take it from there. And to his credit, he introduced me to a buyer at Town Pump hmm. at the buyer at the time is, is also a family member of the Town Pump family. I had a meeting with him. He loved it. That's wild. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, uh, I'm going to give you a shot. And that's really how it started when, and you can't overstate how important that is because pretty much what you said Regardless, if, if you're in Montana, everyone knows who Town Pump is. Even if you're not in Montana, you've now got a 100-store chain that you now have credibility. You can say, instead of being in 100 different random small businesses, you can say you know how to service a chain with 100-plus stores. The distribution. Yep. You could just take that case study to yep. anyone else. And you else. could take and you could say, well, I did that in Montana. I could do that. And you could just pick a state, pick a whatever. And you're in you're talking to the distributor, you're, you're kind of just, you're getting all those reps doing all those things. And it started slow. I had to drop ship everything initially, which is not the way you should be doing anything. <laughs> um, I was literally calling every single store to see what the, you know, it's a mess. And then I eventually changed to a distributor. We kind of like earned our way onto the pegs and in the, the inline schematic. And then, uh, and then eventually, you know, we, we kind of got into McLean, who's like the big distributor. And it was it was great because I got to take that and it led to us getting Wawa down the road and some of these other um, C stores, which is just like okay, we did a hundred. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a big leap to go from a hundred to a thousand, but yeah, but we did a hundred here, and you know we're, we're fine. So let's you know keep let's scaling. do this. Yeah, let's just keep scaling. It was probably kind of freaky at first, huh, when you got that first town pump agreement. Yeah, it was it was a little surreal because I mean. At first you thought, okay, we're going to be an e-com business because nobody will put us on shelves. So you're like, okay, I need to figure out. And I was talking about this before, like the, the customer acquisition cost to the lifetime value ratio doesn't really work out for jerky. Um, mm-hmm. It's not, it's not the same as selling, you know, uh, a hunting pack or something where, it's, you know, it's a high price item. Yeah. This is a convenience item. So shipping costs more than the actual bag of jerky. And so you're trying to figure that out and you're like, okay, we got to get on the shelves, but you're only one person at the time. I can't go door knocking on every small business in Montana to get on the (laughs) shelves. So you have to figure out where, where can you be the most efficient with your time? Where can you show your story and get the kind of the most bang for the buck and all that stuff. And then, so when you got the first order from, from town pump, it was amazing. Yeah. You felt like, okay, like I've, I've, I'm on to something here. We can do this. We could do this. Yeah.
1: Did the similar use case kind of happen with the
0: United Airlines deal? How did that come about? Yeah. So the, the three big breaks I had was town pump and the next one was shields. Yeah. Right? Shields is big. Yeah. So we got all the shields and that was then a different use case. And then the big break we had was United. Um, you know, for me, it was like, where can you go compete where others don't have the advantage? C-stores, which is like where 70 plus percent of jerky is sold. It's competitive. Super competitive. Um, you've got sales reps that are out there. You've got brokers that are out there. You've got distributors that are working all that stuff. And then you have buyers that are, you know, picking and choosing based on numbers that exist already. So you have no numbers they want to see what you know, how you're doing. You're like, yeah, but if you don't give me a chance to sell, like, I can't, I can't show you any numbers. Yeah. Um, so it's very tough. So I started looking at, well, what segments or industries are out there that I think my story would resonate with, that, that Jack Links or some of these big guys can't just like bully their
1: way into. That was that was a pretty phenomenal idea, because jerky probably wasn't really being served on flights.
0: Yeah, there, there's a little niche for it, but but you're right. It's it's a, so it's already tough to be on airlines. I I started learning all this stuff. They, they rotate the menu all the time because they want to stay fresh. They want to stay, they want to be what's kind of trendy. Sometimes proteins in, sometimes it's out, you know, Mm -hmm. all these different things. And I just knew it wasn't going to last forever. So there's trade-offs. You know, if you can get into a town pump, you could be there 15 years, right? Sure. Or shields or something. If you get an airline, like, you know, you probably got like a 12 month rotation and they're on to the next thing. And maybe you could circle back or whatever, but I needed like a big bang. And so I, I focused on home improvement, just all the, all these niche categories. So it was like home improvements. It was outdoor sporting goods stores, which we got Shields, and then it was Airlines. And, uh, and luckily story resonated. Um, and we, we inked a deal, which ended up being 18 months, um, which is longer than I expected. Mm-hmm. Learned it.
1: <laughs> you know you, you, have to, you have to change your packaging and stuff to like tiny so we, small bags yeah
0: so they wanted a one ounce bag so that was the least of the stuff i had to do <laughs> it was like you had to do logistics you had to do food safety you know nobody in the c-store space cares about i mean you're usda already so that's good enough airlines not so much like they, they have, have a, a level. whole th- yeah they, it's a next level on the food safety that you know all the, the qa stuff all that stuff and uh and the qc And so, and you had to just scale. You had to go from, okay, we're doing a hundred stores, town pump, and there's, you know, there's 30 shields or whatever. That's not the same as like, you know, doing a hundred thousand units a month. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's just massive volume. And it was a nightmare going in the back end of 21 because all the supply chain stuff was just a debacle. Like getting beef was hard to do the prices, and you know, you're locked into a, you know, like we talked about before, you're locked into a contract. I've got to fulfill this contract at this price. You got to deliver. You got to deliver. And, and so, and everything, all the inputs you put in, beef cost me this much, freight cost me this, all that stuff was out the door. And we had lost pallets. We had to go rescue. We had all kinds of stuff. And this was where like, and so one of the guys on my team was a former teammate of mine, um, never done freight before, never done anything. And I just kind of tasked him with it. And the good thing is, you just solve problems. Like, I mean, you're, 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 you're doing everything outside of the box just to make this, I mean, you're hiring people that aren't technically in shipping to go pick up and save pallets, <laughs> to go do overnight things where you can't do that if you're going through the big freight companies because you're only allowed to drive a certain amount of hours or miles a day and all this other stuff. You guys are scrappy. Yeah, yeah. like you just, there's no choice. Like, because if you don't, if you don't fulfill that order, they're going to get gone. rid of you. Yeah. yeah they're going to get rid of you. You know what I mean? And they don't care that the world's falling apart. You know what I mean? And so, you're still running on a pretty lean, scrappy
1: team. Yeah. It's still, it's still super scrappy. Um, you think that's one of the
0: keys to your success? I think so. I mean, we're we're definitely taking more chances this year. I mean, we actually have a, a physical space now here in town. Um, I'm making investments into kind of getting us to that next level. Obviously, some of the sponsorship deals, all that stuff, so you got to pick and choose but but early on, I thought it was the only way we'd survive mm-hmm. is you had to be scrappy, um super lean, figure out what your business model is, give yourself a little bit of cushion on you know like that United deal did really well for us, obviously um, gave us the confidence to scale, gave us some money in the bank uh, and then it and then it allowed us to make you know decisions on where to go from there and then
1: that eventually led you towards this this next big chapter, which is the, the UFC deal. How did that come about?
0: Again, sometimes it's better to be lucky than good. <laughs> I got to tell you. Uh, the official jerky of UFC, correct? Yeah. So it's funny. We were literally on our last month of our United deal. They featured us um, in the Father's Day – Gifts or whatever, you know, recommendations. And uh, there was a—it's funny because Aljamain Sterling just fought this past weekend against Sean O'Malley, but Aljo was fighting Henry Cejudo in Newark, New Jersey, which is a big United hub. And so one of the executives was just flying to go to that event, and then there was no Wi-Fi. And read the magazine. And just read the magazine. And, and saw then, your ad and just saw it wasn't, it wasn't a feature. Even, yeah. It was yeah. just like kind of a feature. And he, uh, he emailed us and I was like, this is bullshit, <laughs> uh, you know, and, uh, took the call and we started that whole process. And, uh, they, so it was, it was good cause they found us, they really thought it was a good fit and they wanted to, to partner and they thought this category was really good for them. And yeah. I'm thinking of it in terms of, okay, well, if we're going to do something It only makes sense to do something long term. Otherwise, one of these big guys are gonna come in there and they're just gonna like bully us out of the way. Yeah. And so it was it was like, okay, I think it's a great fit too. I really want, I'm a big fan. I want to work with you guys, but but how do we do that? You know what I mean? Um, given the size of our company where we are today, your major sponsors are modello and Jose Cuervo. (laughs) Yeah. They've been around for two years. You know what I mean? Like that's yeah, that's like how are we gonna make this happen? (laughs) That's nuts. Yeah, but that team's awesome. Um, and there were days we were doing three calls a day. Figuring just, it out. Just trying to make it work, man. It's just trying super to make it work.
1: unique, too. Like, there's no sport that I know of that's had, like, an official jerky sponsor before.
0: Yeah, I think it's, um, you know, I looked at, e- even if I had the money to do all the other sports leagues, this one's the only one that really resume- resonates with me right now anyway. But they own the entire stack, They, you know. Everything from the production, they pretty much own all the fighter IP, all that stuff. And so when you look at this, you're like, okay, you've got a partner over there where you can make quick decisions, you know, it, it, uh, and the beauty of that sport, nobody watches replays of football games. Mm -hmm. You can watch a knockout or that fight six years later, and you're still on that octagon. You're still watching that thing. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. So the long tail of this is, uh, is really good. And, you know, a big part of our deal is we get to use their marks. So on our packaging, whatever the case may be, on our signage. Uh, and so it's, uh, it just seemed like a really good opportunity. That's insane. Yeah. That's pretty cool how that came together. Yeah. It was, uh, it's fun. And we've got, you know, a lot of things in the works with them. We're trying to do everything from the giving side to even their power slap stuff, like just everything, like just trying to figure out like how we fit in the mix um, where's your opportunity and we're working on the packaging right now to get that rolled out. So I think we'll really hit our stride in Q4. We're we're like full on in swing of this thing mm-hmm. going into next year where you go to a lot of these food shows and everything else. And we have an opportunity to set up. We've got all the signage we've got, um, we've got a pretty good track record on, you know, big clients we've worked with, big customers, you know not just talking the talk, but walking the walk as far as giving back, doing that piece. We were named Montana Veteran Owned Business of the Year last year. So we've got like enough there um, where I feel like by the time we show up and you come to our booth, you know, we've, we've not only have our story and our product, but we kind of understand like what this cycle and what this process looks like. And I, I'm hoping, um, you know, I'm betting on it, right. That we're going to, we're going to get better at closing larger deals. Yeah. So, and we're going to be introducing sticks here soon. So it'll just give us more product. That's amazing.
1: Yeah. What have you done to, because 10% of sales, 10% of profit goes to your give back program. Mm -hmm. How have you, how have you focused and allocated those resources?
0: Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I started out, I knew I didn't want to be a charity. (laughs) Like it seems very hard. It's uh, it's different. It's, it's different. It's a it's a totally different thing. And I wanted to, I I wanted to be a for profit. Like it was important to me to show that we can be a for profit company and succeed and compete. But I wanted to give back. And so when you go down this, there's a lot of charities out there. And we've made some mistakes early on on who we give to and who we associate with. And you start figuring out, okay, well, there's a lot of agencies that rate these charities. You can figure out like how many cents on the dollar go to different things. The easiest, the lowest hanging fruit for us for us, was honestly to work locally with the charities here. Because um, you can meet these guys. Yeah, you can meet them. They weren't so big that you really had no impact on what they were doing. And so you could drive over, you can meet them. And the beauty is everyone's got, I don't want to say similar programs. They all have programs. And they're all trying to do well. And then there is the dollars on the cents to go. But they don't all have Montana as your backdrop. Mm-hmm. It's like perfect restorative backdrop outdoors, which I know... If you're a veteran, that works. <laughs> we have some have, phenomenal veteran nonprofits. Yeah, there, yeah. amazing. Um, so the first ones right off the bat we worked with is Big Sky Bravery, Wars in Quiet Water. Um, we just started up with Heroes and Horses, and then uh, and now we started working you know with Nick and Talon's Reach, mm-hmm. and it's just amazing because you can you can actually see, and they all have different versions of their stories, right? for Big Sky Bravery, it was active duty military, which was something I wasn't seeing out there when we were doing all of our research. Um, It was like, yeah, why do you have to catch them by the time they're, you know, quote unquote, broken? Like, why why don't you, you know, help the guys that are in fighting the fight right now? It was really cool how Big Sky Bravery did that. Like,
1: they're really unique. I think when Big Sky Bravery was founded, I think they were one of the only ones, there could be more now, but that were... Reaching out to
0: people that were still in, that were still active duty. Yeah. It's, no, I think. Look, if we would have had that when we were in, I think I think it would have went a long way. Mm-hmm. Um, and then all these organizations offer, you know, some some form of it. And and look, I'm not going to pretend to know the ins and outs of all these organizations. It's not my thing necessarily. But I do understand. Um, at the end of the day, you're getting guys in a beautiful backdrop, doing outdoor activities. And I thought about it, I was like, okay, well, I'm talking to a lot of these organizations. They got offices in New York, (laughs) you know, in LA. It's different. It's like, well, who's paying the, you know, the bill to keep (laughs) this nice high rise going? You know what I mean? This office space. I'm like, well, how many, you know, like, where's the money going? Where are they sending the participants, you know, and all that stuff. And not to, you know, not to knock some of them. Um, And we work with other ones. We do ones that do scholarships. We work with, uh, you know, other ones that are just kind of closer to home for us in the special ops community that help, you know, former green berets and stuff like that. But we're agnostic. We, we do, we've worked with all kinds of charities, not necessarily partnering officially um, but cutting the check. Like we did Warriors Heart Foundation last year, um, you know, that helped people with PTSD and stuff like that. So we'll do a campaign specific. We did a pull-up challenge for them. I think we did 10,000 pull-ups a day for four days And so, and we teamed up with GBRS group, which is, you know, pretty much, uh, tier one, tier one, uh, seals. Yeah. And, you know, they have like a whole fitness program and everything. And so at the end of the day, it's just like, we can work and partner with organizations and we don't have to necessarily be partners with them. Sure. Um, just like, you know, if you're doing something good, it's our mandate to cut checks, you know?
1: It was really smart how you set that up that, like I envy a lot and I think it's a really good tip for any other like young entrepreneurs out there that are getting something off the ground. Mountain Ops did a similar thing and I was able to have a conversation with Trevor, the founder of Mountain Ops. But since day one of the founding of that business, he committed to giving back a certain percentage of every single product that was sold and. Your structure is very similar to his structure. And it's a game changing movement because, like, when he started, he was pretty small and that wasn't much cash he was able to give back. But where they are at today, it's like life changing, game changing checks that he's able to write. And so, like, just making that part of your business from day one or from early on, where like, part of the business is that just we're going to give back a certain percentage. Then, because the opposite in going the more traditional route is very difficult where you have to, you still might have a purpose and a mission and want to help out as many people as you can, but you have to go figure out where that money's coming from and you have to reallocate some money to make that happen. But the way you formalize that that process is pretty
0: brilliant. Yeah, I appreciate it. it. It wasn't, it was a little bit by design, but it was also a little bit by accident in the sense of, like I said, I want to be a for profit. At times I did tinker. I was like, you know what? I'm fine if you did run this as a non profit and I just pulled a salary, but I'm doing what I love doing and I'm helping people. The issue was if you do that, you cap yourself off, right? I know coming from the investment community, everybody says that sounds great, except it's hard, to, it's hard to, to look for investors that want to <laughs> give money to something that doesn't make a profit, mm-hmm. right? And so to me, it was like, you may need capital to get to ultimately what you want to build. Why would you kneecap yourself off into something that says, hey, we don't make a profit here. There's no P&L. Like, we give everything away. No investor is going <laughs> to, no capital allocator is going to give you know money for that. Sure. And so then I looked at it and I said, okay. And it was a, it's a fine line because there's a lot of corporate, you know, entities that play this game and it's mostly bullshit PR, sure. right? They pick whatever the trending thing of the day is. They give a little bit of, you know, money and they blow it up. They spend more on marketing than the actual giving part just to like, you know, bullshit their way to the consumer. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it was just like, look, I'm going to be very transparent with this. Um, we made, I think we made $70,000 that first year. So there was no profit. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And I still gave like $20,000, you know what I mean? Like it yep. was just, cause it was like, look, if you're going to do this, just do it. And we've kept up that whole thing. I mean, last year we gave over a hundred thousand dollars, you know, I mean this year will be harder cause we have the sponsorship stuff and all that. Yeah. Um, but we still just give wherever we can. And to me, it's like, just be transparent about it. Um, just, just be who you say you are. You know what I mean? That's amazing. it's going to come out. If you're full of shit, it's going to come out. People are going to figure it yeah, out. They're going to figure it out. And so why take the short, you know, take the short path where you you think you're taking a shortcut only to like fall flat on your ass and be embarrassed that, you know, down the road. Yeah. People pick up on that so fast. And you can't recover from that. If you're not going to recover from that, if you've been bullshitting people and I've seen it in the, in the, uh, in the nonprofit space, you know, I mean, you you don't recover from that. Mm -hmm. No.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Do you think a lot of your like drive discipline and motivation for entrepreneurship you think the the mindset you kind of forged through the military has been helping you a lot with your ability to to create a business out of thin air?
0: Yeah. Uh, honestly, um a couple things. One, and not to say other people don't go through adversity, but you you're in an environment where you're going to experience you're not you're not always going to be the winner. That's first off. So mm-hmm. you're going to have to learn to to lose. <laughs> um And it's not losing, you're just going to learn, you're going to get better. And so it's not a, it's not nothing to be ashamed of, you know what I mean? Like you're just going to pick yourself up. So that resiliency, that, uh, that experience you have just going through some adversity, whether it's in a training environment or a real life environment, um, helps you kind of just work your way through things. And then a lot of the stuff is, you know, I started learning, especially when I went to business school, there's a lot of specialists out there. And you, and you need specialists in the world, especially if you're like a, a very um, polished company or mature company. You need people that are like just really good at their discipline. But when you're a startup, it's like being on a team where you're you know there's nine guys, everyone's got an MOS. You're going to wear a lot of different hats. Yeah, You're going to plug a lot of different done. holes. You just, at the end of the day, you're just trying to solve problems. And having a specialist who like sits behind the cubicle and only does this one thing, that's not going to work. Mm-hmm. And so you've got to be unconventional with some of your thinking. You've got to be a little bit of a risk taker without being reckless. Um, And you've got to be able to self. just, you know, like we said, brush yourself off, uh, make the best decision you can, given the data you have, and then just know you got to stick around. So don't be like careless. You you know, you can't bet it all necessarily, but you're going to have to stick around um, and hopefully you get more swings at this thing. And over time, you know, if you bat, seven, you know, if you bat 300, let's say, you know what I'm saying? And you pick the right opportunity streams, you're going to be successful. And I think just that discipline knowing the hardest thing I tell entrepreneurs is it's too easy to get pulled in a lot of different directions. Like you start a company, you want to sell this one thing. And then all of a sudden you got like a hundred products, you got a hundred storylines going on. And for me, it's like, I just want to focus on one thing and compound that and get better that compound effect by just getting better at what we do before we branch out because I'm probably not talented enough to do a hundred different things, you know? So let's just do the one thing or a couple things. Right. And so just staying disciplined on that piece, I get that from like my military experience, which is like, there's a job to do, stay focused on the mission. There's going to be, you know, the plan's going to go astray or you're going to have to call a frag or whatever the case is, but, but understand what, you know, be have intention with whatever decision you're going to make and make the best decision and then just have the discipline uh, to stay the course and just work your ass off. Yeah. I think if you do that, you've probably got an 80% chance of success. (laughs) I totally agree. So much of entrepreneurship
1: for me and for us at Mountain Tough has seemed to be a lot of, like you just never quit. Like it's a game of perseverance and it's just one foot in front of the, next day after day year after year and that it just combines and just adds up and a lot of a lot of startups that are really successful always from the outside look like these overnight successes and when you really dig into all of them none of them are even close to that they're almost always the complete opposite they're always like a lot of times most of them are 10 years of really hard work before you even see him pop up or before you even know them as a brand name and it's like, it's just don't quit and just keep fighting day after day and then your second point is so spot on for, for us and for my experience as well it's like you just stay in your lane because it's so easy to get sidetracked into to other lanes and there's so many different ideas that pop up where you come outside of your what you're good at and what, you know, you can do over and over again. And they can be big distractions for sure.
0: Yeah. I mean, look, what you guys have done is, uh, I mean, it's pretty amazing just to watch like the growth and everything. And you're, you're super hyper-focused on, you know, you know exactly what it is you do and, you know, you could you're not even deviating, you, you know, you're, you're adding complimentary things that, that fit into what you guys do. Um, but I know people that like, they start venturing. Mm-hmm. it's like and they and you get caught especially in coming from the military background which seems to be a lot of people want to be the cool guy stuff and it's it's constantly it's a very competitive space in the tactical space and all that and you got to show you're like the best and the baddest and all this stuff and it's like that's that's challenging <laughs> yeah you know what i mean yeah. so i'm over here in this other lane you know which is jerky and meat snacks um I don't need to play some of that other stuff. And I don't need, And even though you want to be in the veteran community, I don't need to get dragged into all those other things. You know what I mean? Like I don't need to have protein shakes. And I don't need to do all this other stuff. I just need to do what I do well, figure out how to do that well. That's value add to the the market. And then we can go from there,
1: mm-hmm. you know? So. Yeah, it's so important. You're
0: doing a great job of that. Thanks. Yeah, I do worry sometimes, because like you said, I agree everyone thinks it's these overnight successes, but they're 10 years in the making. The beauty of the people that it took 10 years to get to, they've really got dialed in. Mm. They've they've got some scars. They've learned some things along the way. They've got reps. You know, I am, this is going a little quicker than I thought. (laughs) I'll I'll be honest with you. Right. It's going fast. yeah. Yeah. Um, and so just to make sure I was just mentioning, this is like probably the second podcast I've ever done, you know? So, so just making sure, uh, you don't get dragged into too many other directions that take away from what you're doing uh, is important, right? And you start telling the story piece of it, and then you start getting a little bit too ahead of yourself, and you're not doing the stuff on the back end, which is the logistics, the scaling, that you know all the stuff that makes this thing work. Um, you got to make sure there's only a certain amount of time in the day, yeah. And so you got to focus on you know making sure it works first before you're out there too far ahead of yourself.
1: Yeah, and that was kind of my final question I had for you today was around that topic of like there are so many hours in the day and you're a husband and a father now. So how have you found ways or how has it been going managing a successful startup and (laughs) being there for your family?
0: Yeah, so the the deal I have pretty much with my wife is I work as much as I want, uh, but I need to be home by dinner, which is six. So we have it, you know, with our son, she lets me work on the weekends, you know, so I'm, I'm constantly like working a lot, but I, I, uh, I give up a lot of free time stuff I would normally do just to go, you know, on a hike with them, just to hang out on a Saturday, do some of that stuff. Nice. Um, and that's the trade-off, right? Like that's the trade-off. And until he's old enough where I can incorporate those activities into our activities and what we do, you know, you're just chasing him around the house and you just, you know, and that's yeah. good enough. You know what I mean? Like, I think that's that's the deal we kind of have. Um, you know, I don't want to say I dragged her, but I brought her all the way out to Montana, to Billings, <laughs> Montana, with not really – it wasn't, you know, this thing wasn't –
1: we didn't know if this thing was going to work. You Dude, know and I mean? I'm from Billings. I grew up in Billings, and no one wants to move to Billings. So <laughs> Yeah, I think it's an re- undappreciated
0: <laughs> city, but, yeah, I know what you're saying. Yeah. And, you know, she's from California. We were living in cities, and she's like – and so – Look, she's been there for the whole ride. Um, and so I, I feel like in many ways I owe, you know, that piece of it to have. I don't want to call it balance because I i don't like to think of it as like balance. I, I think I like to think of it as like, look, this is what I want to be doing. This is what, this is what I'm going to be doing. I'm going to put everything into it. But how do I allot enough time uh, to my family? Mm-hmm. And that's got to come out of somewhere else. It just has to.
1: That's a pretty like sweet little hack, though, just the concept of like, I'm gonna grind really hard, and I might wake up early and work all day. But I'm gonna be home every day at six and be focused on the family. Yeah, like
0: those simple tips are super helpful. Yeah, because he—I mean, he goes—he goes to bed around eight thirty. So you're only talking. I mean, there's a window. You got from six to eight thirty. You know, give everything for that time window. Maybe it's nine, depending what he is. And then, uh, look, if there's still more work to do, do it at nine o'clock. You know? Yeah. And then, you know, make sure you get your date nights in and all that stuff with your wife. But that, if you can't do that, like, you know what I mean? Like from six to eight thirty or six to nine, um, it's not going to work. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? Cause you can't work 24 seven. You gotta have a balance. Yeah. yeah. You gotta have, you gotta have some kind of balance. So that's awesome. It seems to be working for me. Okay. Yeah. That's awesome. You have to ask
1: my wife though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, great work, man. Definitely proud of you. Entrepreneurship is not easy and you're doing a great job. And it's really cool that you're doing that in Montana, out of Bozeman, and, and all the stuff you guys are doing to give back is is amazing.
0: Yeah, I appreciate it. And it was, uh, it was awesome to be here today. It's just to see what you guys have built. To do the workout with you guys, it was, it was pretty intense. So yeah,
1: thanks for coming by. That that workout was fun. The cold plunge was fun. Cold it's, plunge is great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah, yeah. I need one of those. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks, Nate.
0: Appreciate it. Awesome. Appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks.